there was this kind of shock that just I can't believe I'm like barricading my office door with furniture, like unsure what's happening. On January 6, 2021, the United States Capitol was stormed by a violent mob, a traumatic and terrifying experience for the entire nation, but particularly those in the building. My guest today, Congressman Andy Kim, was present that day. A photograph of the congressman cleaning the floors of the Capitol building afterwards went viral, capturing the gravity of the task that lay ahead, not just in cleaning up the Capitol, but also politics in America. Congressman Kim is a Democrat representing the 3rd District of New Jersey and a former career public servant under both Democrats and Republicans, having served at the Pentagon, the State Department, the White House National Security Council, and more. In our very candid discussion, Congressman Kim talked about why he thinks mental health is one of the most important issues on his agenda. We discussed the challenges faced by those in the national security field and ways in which they can protect their mental well-being. We also talked about how he works on preserving his own mental health, despite working on some of the toughest national security issues of our generation, and why he believes the events of January 6th should be a wake-up call for how politics is practiced in America. Throughout our conversation, and despite his career-long commitment to public service, it was clear that Congressman Kim is first and foremost a family man. We discussed how he went into politics to make a better world for his children and the toll it takes having to be away from home in order to fulfill that mission. Hi everyone, and welcome back to MindWork, where we're on a mission to transform mental health in the workplace, one story at a time. I'm your host, Jasmine El-Gamal. Hi, Congressman Kim. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks, Jasmine, for having me. It's such a pleasure, first of all, to have you here, not just because um, I think you're a really important voice in this field, but also um, it's just good to see you as an old friend. We've known each other for years and we worked together uh, at the Pentagon years ago. I can't even remember. I think it was like 2013, 2012, 2013. It was around the Arab Spring. Yeah, so so much has happened. In the world, in both of our lives. So it's it's really great to reconnect. Absolutely. And I remember, I was trying to think of the last time when you and I had a real conversation. It was before you got elected. You got elected to Congress in 2019, right? Yeah, in the 2018 election, I got sworn in in 2019. And you got sworn in 2019. And I think we had had a conversation a couple of years before that. If you remember, we met up and had a chat. It was after you left. You had left government for a while. And I think at that point you had had your first child, your first little boy, and we were just talking about what comes next. And I don't remember if you knew at that time that you wanted to run for Congress, but we definitely had a really good conversation about about service, about wanting to give back and about trying to figure out what the next step was. So take us back to that conversation, if you can remember it, and how you made the decision to run for Congress, because obviously it's not the easiest job in the world. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's and it's look, it's not something I ever thought I would do in, in terms of running for office. As you as you said, you know, I was a public servant. I was a career guy. I worked under both Republicans and Democrats. I served the country, not a party, and I was very happy doing that. You're right. I did. I did. I did leave government. For appearing, but that was to be a dad, you know. I, I so I, I my first kid was uh, being born, and 
I just didn't feel like I could continue the work that I was doing on counterterrorism and, and the war on ISIS and be the kind of father that I wanted to be. So I decided that I needed to just kind of take some time just for the family. So I just, you know, I became a stay-at-home dad and just wanted to do that job as well as I, as I could. But I knew I wanted to go into service again. You know, so it was just a matter of, of when and what role. But honestly, it was it was becoming the dad that just really kind of transformed me in terms of my outlook. All of a sudden, you know, you're holding this little, little baby boy and and all of a sudden, like I start to think a lot more about healthcare, about education, about just the general stability or lack thereof of stability in America right now. Like what kind of America is he going to grow up in? And you know, when, when Trump was elected and when I started to see these things happening in this country that I didn't imagine ever seeing, it just kind of shifted my conception of where I think I can be of impact. Mm. And all of a sudden, I just started to think about home. I started to think about my old community in New Jersey where I, you know, where I wanted to raise a family and was thinking, how can I be of service while being there? And, 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 decided to run for office, but it was um, definitely something I never thought about doing. But I think that's actually why I was successful uh, you know, in this district. Is I think people in my district, a district that's very much a swing district, I think they're looking for people who are not politicians. Yeah. I think they like that I'm a career public servant, that I worked under Republicans and Democrats, that I come at this from a different direction. So that turned out to be, you know, I thought that was going to be my biggest weakness. It actually turned out to be probably my my biggest strength. Yeah, and that comes across so strongly in your in your work, in your writing, in your speeches. I mean, it is so clear to anyone who follows you, Congressman, that you are doing this for all the right reasons. And actually, it's 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 so nice to hear you talk about being a dad and and thinking about the kind of world that you want to raise your kids in. I think about that sometimes, and I often find the answer to be too overwhelming to decide to actually have kids. I mean, it's it's a big decision. And I think probably because of the nature of our work, we have seen the worst of the world sometimes. And so sometimes it's easy to focus on that and be a little overwhelmed, I think. But you know, what I admire about you is that you looked at, like you said, what you could do and how you could have impact instead of dwelling on the overwhelming nature of the negatives. And you talk a lot about being a dad on Twitter, anyone who follows you on Twitter, and I highly recommend for all of our followers to follow you because you talk about these real issues, you talk about them very much from a father perspective, from a human perspective. You often talk about moments where you think about a specific issue and you'll do like, you'll kind of do a thread and lay out your thinking process about, okay, so this happened today. This is how I thought about how I would talk about it with my sons. You have two sons now. This is how, you know, these are the kinds of questions they're, they're asking. This is how I'm struggling with it. So I want to talk about that a little bit because that kind of goes into obviously the issue of the of, of this show and of the work that that I'm doing, which is about mental health in the workplace. So I was wondering, I mean, as I said, it's not an easy job, but especially it feels like in the last few years, it has just become, I mean, from the outside looking in, it just seems poisonous. It seems so intense. There's so much friction between the parties, there are some personalities that are that are really 
I don't know. It just seems it seems yeah. really hard from the outside. And I don't you know, we don't want to go into politics, even though you're a politician, but we want to talk about the issues. So I wanted to ask you about how you show up to work in this kind of environment and try to be healthy and try to help your staff be healthy. And I was also just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the issue of mental health in Congress, in national security. It feels like it's still very much a taboo. And and I was wondering how you how you think about it and how it feels and, and looks like from the inside. Yeah, happy, happy to. I mean, you know, for me, as I said, with my previous job, I was you know, I was in national security. I was working, uh, you know, in a lot of different jobs, but those jobs were very different than the current job that I have. Um, you know, the, the current job that I have, it's by nature a more public job. It is by nature a job where I am a direct representative and, for, and voice of, you know, 780,000 people. It, it, it was different. You know, back, back when we worked at the Pentagon together, you remember, like, if we were in meetings... You know, we had like talking points of how to talk to, you know, representatives from Iraq or other countries. We were speaking always on behalf of the United States government, uh, always with that kind of mindset. In mind. And we could filter out and we recognize that we have to separate our own thinking uh, from, you know, some of that. You know, we try to do our best to influence our best ideas into into it and, and be able to speak genuine there. But it's different. You know, now I work, I work a job where I, I represent my district and I speak with my voice. So the question is, like, what do I think about this? Not just like, what does the State Department or the Pentagon think about this? And that took a while yeah. for me to really understand, because, like, you know, that muscle memory was so ingrained in me from, you know, a decade of, of uh, you know, memos and papers and clearance processes and like, uh, I think that was something that I had probably my own kind of uh, uh, trauma from in terms of that bureaucracy, right? Now the question is like, what do I believe? And that was like a really tough question. Like very few people in my life have ever really asked me like, what do you really think? Yeah. And so um, I have to like, I have to really figure out how to, how to answer that question in a way that was authentic and honest to who I am. But also rec rec recognizing that, like, look, like, I still do represent others. And not every single one of them is going to have the same viewpoints and perspectives as me. In fact, a, a large portion of my district, you know, is, is votes uh, in, a, in a different way. And, and my elections have been, uh, you know, while I, I won my elections, I also recognize a very sizable number of people voted against me. Yeah. You know, and, and so kind of trying to understand that. Also, you know, it just it, it feels like an environment that like just that where like it feels like people either in the other party or in politics or the media, they're like they're looking for a way for you to screw up. You know, they're looking for a way for you to say something wrong and mess up. So, you know, just just that the default could always be to just kind of like withdraw and try not to say as much because you don't want to you know be in a chance to make more mistakes and there are parts of my career uh, you know especially early on where i think i was more reticent especially around certain topics but then like you know i guess what i came to understand and some of this i, I came to understand a lot more after january 6th but i think i came to understand in my elections that 
that what people are looking for when they're thinking about who to vote for is they're, they're saying to themselves, not necessarily like, who is the best on my issues? I mean, that's part of it. But they also just ask this fundamental question of like, why is this person running? What is the intention? What, what is motivating them to run? And basically what that comes down to is, do I trust this person? Yeah. And so, you know, that question of trust, it's not just a checklist of what policies you support. Yeah. It's about who you are as a human being and whether or not they feel any connection. So, so that's one thing. I'll, I'll just say quickly on, on the second topic about mental health. I mean, this has become something that has been a guiding, uh, guiding issue for me. It's the number one issue that I hear about from educators now, about youth in America, about, you know, when I talk to principals or teachers, they're not asking me as much about, you know, about, uh, you know, some of the other issues that we've dealt with with schools. A lot of it is just about the mental health crisis, you know, when it comes to youth, increased uh, attempts of suicide. I am also now the, the ranking member on the military personnel subcommittee, which, uh, you know, a huge, huge problem when it comes to mental health, military and veteran suicide yeah. challenges, both, you know, from the pandemic, but we knew we had these problems even before the pandemic. I think the pandemic kind of, you know, was like throwing gasoline on the fire. So it made things even yeah. worse. But, you know, this is something that we are not prepared for as a nation uh, in terms of, of of getting our heads around this and, and making sure we have the resources to tackle it. So I'm trying to see what I can do to move us in a better direction. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's like there's almost like there's two kind of there's two issues here, really. Like one is the mental health crisis in America. By the way, it's the same here. I mean, I'm talking to you from London. Huge, huge crisis, especially with youth. And, you know, obviously here it's a public health care system. It's completely overwhelmed. And I'm just reading these incredibly difficult stories about people in mental health crises who are not able to get the help they need, even in emergency situations. So it's it's obviously it's a huge crisis. I feel like it's it's definitely getting more attention now post pandemic. And it's getting attention because you can't ignore it anymore. I mean, people are just struggling. But what about for someone like you and for people who work in the places where you are meant to be finding solutions to this issue, right? I mean, that's then that's the second issue is your own mental health and the mental health of people who are working on these issues, who are in government, who are public servants, who are working in national security. You know, you go into work and I can imagine that, you know, you're feeling all different kinds of things. I mean, a, there's stuff that's going on in your own life that may be, you know, difficult that you're having difficulty with that then you show up to work and you have to put that sort of to the side in order to focus on your job, but also coming into work and feeling stressed or anxious or depressed or any of those things that you feel because of the nature of the job. And especially with, you know, the events of January 6th, as everyone knows, were, were just, I mean, shocking. I can't think of a, another word to describe them. There was a photo of you, Congressman, that went viral after January 6th, which um, is a photo of you basically on your hands and knees cleaning up the Capitol, the floors of the Capitol with the, with the sec security guards. And it was so powerful, that photo, because it really, I don't know, it just, I, it really touched me. I mean, it really felt like you were 
it was more than just about you physically cleaning up the floor. It was really what it said to me was this was someone who is who wants to work to clean up, you know, to fix the environment in general of that place. You know, someone who is, you know, you weren't talking about who did this or why at that moment, you just wanted to make things better. And I feel like that really embodies you as a congressman and and the things that you do and the things that you talk about. But that must take a huge toll. You know, I mean, I mean, I, I'm sure that it that it feels, you know, that that it's difficult and it's difficult for your staff and it's difficult for younger people who don't feel like maybe that they can always talk about these things. I'd love to hear from you about that, about how you manage your own mental health going to work in these circumstances if you struggle with anything and what you would say to people who maybe don't feel confident in speaking out and saying that they need help in this really rough kind of work environment. There's a, there's a lot of this job that makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, you know, as, as I said, when, when you and I worked together, you remember me when I, like back then, like, like I was, we were subject matter experts in what we did. And my job was to know more about what it takes to defeat ISIS than anybody else in America. You know, like I was, <clears throat> my job was to know a lot about that smaller slice of things. And I could be an expert. You were an expert. We were experts at this and we could go toe to toe. We were young, but we could go toe to toe with four stars and ambassadors and others because we knew the stuff. I now work in arguably the most generalist job in America. Every day I come across topics that I don't feel like I have the level of handle on, but I'm at, I'm expected to make monumental decisions sometimes yeah. on, on, on less information. So I feel uncomfortable. Um, so like a lot of this job, I feel like I'm just trying to, to find ways to get to some level where of, of confidence and, um, you know, perhaps it's because I was a subject matter expert before that I have a very high threshold for where I think I need to be and I'm not always there. So I push myself hard to learn. I am learning more pound for pound every day than I ever have in my life. Just, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm the steepest learning curve in my life right now. And that's both exciting, but also nerve wracking. Sure. Because it's not just knowledge for knowledge's sake. It's like it's about again trying to figure out how I can make these decisions. I put I put an enormous amount of stress on myself to try to get up to speed, to make sure I'm making the right touches to people in my district or other stakeholder groups to try to do my due diligence, hear different perspectives. But I'm always going to fall short. There's always more people I can I should have talked to or engaged with. So. Um, how do I then make sure I do this job where I'm not just accumulating this regret uh, of, or, or this feeling of imposter syndrome of like, how am I here as a son of immigrants that, that I, I, got, I got elected to Congress at the age of 36? Like, how do I recognize that, that I can do this job, right? So that's something that I'm trying to grapple with. That's something that, that I'm still trying to comprehend. Uh, you know, another part of the job that's enormously difficult is is that is that I spend about 150 days minimum a year away from my family. True. Uh, so I, you know, I told you I like left my previous job to be a stay at home dad 
And I went from being a stay-at-home dad to being a member of Congress. And I say often that I'm doing this job for my kids. And I really do believe that. I'm doing this for my kids to try to make sure they can grow up in an America that is more stable, more secure, more prosperous, where they'll have opportunities and there'll be less violence, less chaos. I mean, that's the hope. But it's like, it's this kind of like weird, like conundrum here that like, for me to try to, to provide for their future, I'm absent from their present. Yeah. And I miss them. Like, I, I just, I, I, I can't stand that I'm away from them. And that provides another source of stress. It's just like, am I being the father they need to be? And part of that exact same question is, am I being the husband that I need to be? Yeah. And my wife, who works her own job, she now has to cover down when I'm not around. And I feel enormous amount of guilt. I mean, that was why I left the White House, was because... I was such a bad husband to my wife at that time. Like I was 100% focused on my job of, again, trying to, you know, help win this war against ISIS. Even though I was based in D.C. at the White House, I had this mentality, I need to be on war footing. I need to be on that battle rhythm. And I was so I was pushing myself, working, you know, upwards 16, 18 hour days, barely sleeping. But it also meant that I just was never present for her. And I took her for granted. I treated her poorly in terms of, you know, the respect she deserved to know even little things about like, when am I coming home at night? Or, you know, does she need to prepare meals or, or, or even me just showing interest in her career and her life. So now I'm doing a job that's now adding stress in again, in that way. And I'm, and now physically gone a lot. So like, I have an enormous amount of stress where I feel like, why am I putting my family through this? Is it worth it? So like those are struggles that I I carry in addition to just some of the day-to-day of working in a job where you know you have some of the biggest egos and some of the biggest personalities. And a lot of the job, you know, is not necessarily what I'm, you know, I'm a policy nerd when it comes down to it. I like the details and the policies, but I operate in what I often call sort of a performative governance space, where a lot of what it means to be a member of Congress these days, unfortunately, is about kind of acting apart. And you see that in the hearings, you see that in the posturing. And, you know, it feels like a lot of my colleagues are more interested in being social influencers rather than lawmakers. Yeah. And I get very frustrated. I you know, see that. And I'm like, are, are, like we work the same job. Like, how is it that we're so different? So, like, you know, there's a lot of areas of stress there that uh, that kind of intersect. And I'll be honest, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm doing a great job of managing it. You know, I, I am still trying to figure out a way to be able to pull these threads together, keep my head on a, a more stable shoulder. Um, so, um, you know, we're, I think this is all kind of a work in progress for a lot of us. Yeah. Thank you so much for being so honest and, and open about this. I mean, you know, for people who are listening, who don't know what it means to be working at the white house on any issue, let alone at the time was one of the top issues. It was Iraq. It was the war on ISIS. I mean, you were briefing the president regularly. You had to be at the ready. If the president had any questions about this you know, one of the biggest issues on his desk, that was you. 
And so just just to put it in context for people who are listening to this, who, you know, to imagine that level of stress and responsibility. So, you know, for you to be talking about how you felt like you weren't being the best husband you could be, the best father you could be, you were dealing with an enormous amount of pressure and stress, but also... Well, and, and, you know, when I when I look back on the job, I mean, like, my job every morning was to wake up early, come in, read the intel briefs, the military briefs, and basically just, you know, be, you know, kind of count, you know, how many people did we lose on our side? How many people did they lose on their side? And, you know, and, 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 you know, just kind of hear about these atrocities of the Yazidi genocide and uh, other aspects of, of what we went through. And, you know, you're just reading, you're, 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 you're reading and, and talking to people and, and, and engaging and, and, and seeing some of like the worst of humanity. I mean, just the, the beheadings and the horrible things that ISIS was doing to just really dehumanize people. And, my coping mechanism was to just try to kind of become numb to it. I, I, that just was, you know, it was a, just not sustainable because it was still impacting me no matter how much I was trying to suppress it. But two, it just like, it, it made me a shell of a human in the process. It made me kind of someone that was not just divorced from the emotions of the job, but just um, divorced from emotions very large. So I took that home. I took that to my friends. I took that to my family where like, I just can't process emotion because my, my body's just been trained in that kind of capacity. So, I mean, look, I mean, you know, a lot of people work in these spaces dealing with tough issues, some in government, you know, I, I, I can't even imagine what it's like to be like a doctor or someone where you're experiencing this with your hands and, and your own experiences every day. Like people understand that kind of trauma in a lot of different ways. So I'm not saying mine was unique or, or more powerful, but in my own way, I struggled. And I think that's why what you see now is me trying to do kind of the opposite. I'm trying to embrace the, the emotion in my job. I'm trying to show that being a lawmaker is more than just about writing words on a page with a bill number. You know, there, there is real things at stake here. And what I've come to find is that that ability to express that emotion and the way I sort of talk about it is, is honestly, it really comes down to storytelling yeah. um, is, is that that storytelling and that emotional connection, you know, that's how I try to communicate to 780,000 people that I will never be able to meet everyone in person or let alone try to communicate to, you know, the rest of the country, that emotion and that, that thing that, you know, sometimes you want to suppress because it's scary and it's difficult and, and sometimes uncontrollable. That is also in many ways our what makes us human and what makes us connect with one another, what makes the empathy able to find a connecting points on two ends. So, you know, that's something that I've really kind of unlocked with this job that uh, that I, I learned lessons of from from previous problems that I've had. Yeah. And it's so, it's, it's amazing to hear you talk about this because, you know, and talk about the, the struggles that you were feeling and, and the difficulties that you were having working on these issues. I mean, reading, of course, that news every day. I mean, like you said, you know, like war and beheadings and deaths and like every single day, that is the first thing that you read in the morning. And then you have that you carry that through the day. And I find it really 
helpful, I think, to hear from you that you did struggle and that you did have difficulty processing these issues. Because of course, as you know, especially in this field, but also in other fields as well, you know, a lot of people walk around, if you are someone who is struggling, I think it's easy to look at other people and think, oh, well, he seems to be doing just fine. You know, why isn't he affected by this or she affected by this? Like, it, mu it must be something wrong with me. I must be, you know, weak or particularly not up to the task or I just can't hack it. Because you look at other people and on the surface, it seems that they are doing just fine. I mean, when we were working together, you were always one of the people that seemed to be to me and to everyone else. I mean, you had this reputation, right? Like you were always on top of everything. You were unflappable. You know, you never lost your temper. You were just this great, friendly, jovial, professional guy who, I mean, I always looked up to you. You know, we were peers, but I very much looked up to you in the sense that I was like, this guy, man, like he just can do any, he's Superman. He can do anything and, and he can handle anything. And it's so it's so illuminating. And I think in a way, so helpful to hear from you that actually you weren't, I mean, of course you were doing the job and, and you were doing it really well, but there is no such thing as Superman, right? I mean, I just find those labels to be so, so unhelpful and so misleading. You know, when someone looks at a, you know, especially like as a woman, if I, you know, when I, the, the, the term superwoman, I mean, when you think about what that applies to. It applies to a woman who is doing her job, working 15 hours a day, but always looks amazing. She also has three kids and she's raising them really well. And she's going out and meeting friends and she has a social life. Oh, and she's doing her PhD on the side. I mean, it's the standards. I mean, the, I'm not even making this up. I mean, these are real people. Sometimes you see online, people always obviously put their best foot forward on social media. And so it's very easy for us to look and to look around us and think that we we are surrounded in our fields in our careers by these supermen and superwomen, and so yeah. And one one thing I, I'll just say in response to this is, um, you know, you made reference to January six, and you know that that was obviously one of the toughest days of my life, where. You know, you and I, we've been in tough spots before. We've worked in places where we've had shelter in places and, 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 and challenges. But, you know, you never imagine it at the United States Capitol, right? And so there was this kind of shock that just I can't believe I'm like barricading my office door with furniture, like unsure what's happening. I, I don't talk about this stuff too much these days, but, um, you know, that, that photograph that you referenced, like I didn't realize I was being photographed. Mm. Uh, when I was cleaning the floor, but I've come to realize that like that's why the photograph was powerful for a lot of people. Because I'm not like standing there with like a you know with like a like a broom and like smiling for a photo op. Like it, it captured sort of this raw moment. And what I learned from the reaction to that photograph, and it, it has it has really changed a lot of how I understand communication. Is like there there was a there's a yearning in this country for a different kind of leadership yes uh, a, a sense that like of humility of of decency of empathy like so much in congress and throughout government like we think like so it's so easy to think that like leadership means 
like the person who speaks the loudest and, and dominates the conversation and and the person who like has that kind of presence when you walk in the room and everyone stops, you know, like we have that kind of notion that's been built up in, in many ways. And it's pervasive. Like, you know, for me, like, yeah, like, I'm glad that I presented that to you and others when I was working at the White House or at the Pentagon. But like, I was struggling inside. Yeah. And I did have to maintain, you know, my momentum. I had to keep up with the job. But perhaps if I was more honest with myself and with others, I could have found a way to do it. In, in And this word, I think, is really important, which is about sustainability. Yeah. Too often we think about service as sacrifice, that you have to sacrifice yourself, whether that's going out to a war zone or working long hours or or just dealing with this or that. But if I want to do this as a career, if I want to do this while still having a family, I got to think about what's sustainable. Absolutely. And so I've been trying to like it was like January 6th that really helped me turn that corner and understand like that there's a different way to do our politics, a different way to think about service and a different way to think about leadership. And not only is it different, but it could be better. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, it's a very humbling experience knowing that in many ways the thing that most people in this country might know me for is not about the brilliance of my policies or the strength of my my voice or the uh, or the you know the power of my legislation but it's but of a very simple act of cleaning of doing what my mom taught me to do when you know when you're in a tough situation which is try to find any way to make a difference yeah doesn't matter service is big or small it's all the same and so um that was powerful to me and and it was after that, that you start to, you know, you talk about sort of how I write on social media or how I talk in my speeches. Like, if you can see a day and night transformation, you know, before and after January 6th about how I communicate, you know, before January 6th, it was all just like cookie cutter, press release type things like Andy Kim's going to do this or that with constituents. And then afterwards, it you know, I really just tried to realize that like people want to see your vulnerability. They want to see you as human. And because that helps them realize that, like, I'm just an ordinary person. Like everyone in Congress, we're just ordinary people. We sometimes like to pretend that we're not, but we're just ordinary people. And that brings democracy down to us. It it makes it, it much more accessible and connected. People feel empowered. And I think that that's that's the kind of um, thing that's helped me find a way to do this job that's more sustainable. Where I'm not, I don't feel like I'm like putting on a show every day. I'm not like dressing up and playing make believe as if I'm, you know, some some you know statesman from from elder years, right? Exactly. exactly. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. And I think I mean you're not playing a character. You're not playing a part. I mean you don't. You don't posture, you know, you don't show up. I mean, there are so many politicians today, whether it's in the U.S. or here. And you're like, who even is this person? Like, I don't trust a single word that's coming out of their mouth because you know that they're just doing this for the cameras or for the photo op. And you are 
you are the exact opposite of that. And, and that really comes across. I mean, I mean, you are, you're, you're vulnerable. I think, you know, you've, you've used the word empathy twice now in this interview. And I think that you, you are highly, highly empathetic. And I think that that empathy that is lacking today in so many environments. You know, people are feeling. Well, a lot of people try to portray it as a weakness. Exactly. Rather than a strength. Yeah. That like, that it, and you see this with the work that we did in diplomacy and national security. It's like, you know, if you're talking to other countries, especially ones we have disagreements about, you know, you're showing weakness that you're, you know, like, uh, you know, you're, you, the lack of engagement there. And, you know, that's, that's what I find to be, problematic and that's what's causing it well not, not not necessarily just causing there are lots of causes but that's what's making this tribalism in this country worse is that like we're struggling to like the way i sort of describe it is like we have a crisis of empathy right now as a nation and we're struggling to understand how to see the world through someone else's eyes and and walk in their shoes and and I want to be careful here. I'm not saying that I am awesome at this. I'm not saying that I'm the best at this. I'm not trying to, to you know, I'm, I'm not trying to say that I've figured it out and I know how to, to, to best be a public servant. But th this is my best guess at it based off of what I've experienced. When I represent a district in 2020, in the elections in 2020, I won my reelection, but Trump won my district too. I'm a Democrat that won a district that Trump won in that same year. And I think about that a lot because there are only five of us, five Democrats that year that won districts that Trump won. And like, you know, it just kind of made me think like, like, what is it that, like, how do I try to build these bridges? How do I try to connect with people that are going to have very different views? And, you know, that's the kind of questioning that I hope happens more in politics is just figure out how you can try to make those connections. And you've got to have that humility and that empathy, in my opinion, in order to even have that kind of conversation. If you think you have all the answers, which I consider, I call that the politics of hubris rather than the politics of humility. If you have that hubris, then you're not actually having conversations with people that have different perspectives. What you're doing is you're just trying to convert them to your ideas. You don't, you don't, you're not keeping an open mind. You're not listening to them, right? So, you know, that's the problem that we're having. And to steer it back to the question that we've been dealing with, uh, grappling with about mental health, like this is where we cross a line that can be so dangerous, is that it's natural and normal for us to be frustrated with one another, even to have anger towards one another. But what I worry about right now is the level of contempt in our society where we have, we get to a place where we have actual contempt for one another based off of political views or very superficial surface level distinctions between us, our society, our mental health, when we are carrying that much, you know, contempt for one another or receiving contempt from others, like that's a very scary place to be. That's, you know, when I see these surveys that people are saying that, you know, majority of Americans think that other Americans in the, with the opposite political viewpoint as them are the enemy, like, I just think that that is such a scary place. And when you throw in the prevalence of gun violence and, and substance use disorder and other things on top of that, you know, it, that's what's manifesting in such a, a scary way in this moment. And that's exactly why I love what you just said about the politics of humility, right? Like, I, uh, sorry, the politics of empathy. 
Empathy is the exact opposite of what you're describing now, which is dehumanization. I think, you know, the, what, what's happening right now and what you're describing is like we are dehumanizing each other based on political opinions or whatever, which is why probably it's easier for someone to pick up a gun and shoot a bunch of people or for someone to say thir- certain things about someone else is because we're we're being trained by what we're seeing and hearing by a lot of politicians, a lot of um, quote unquote leaders in society were being trained to see that other person as the enemy, as the other. Here in the UK, you see it with with migrants and immigrants and asylum seekers, where they're calling them, you know, an invasion and things like. So that language, that dehumanizing language, I think, is is so harmful. And I think the way that you fight that is exactly what you're describing, Andy. Is is exactly what you're doing, which is by being empathetic, which is calling that empathy out and using it and talking to people that you don't necessarily agree with. And I want to I want to make sure that we get that we get to a question. I think you know you've been so open and honest, and I think that you know anyone listening to you would feel encouraged to speak out and to at least be convinced that there is a need to communicate more about our struggles and about, you know, when we're having a hard time. Senator Fetterman, right, he he came out recently with and he talked about his depression after he won his election and, and how he struggled and how he actually had to seek inpatient treatment for it. But for someone who is not a senator, you know, and even as a senator, of course, that took a lot of of you know that was really brave of him to come out and to say this especially because so many people see see it still as a weakness congressman if there is someone who is just starting out on the hill or in national security or in, indeed in any career um someone who doesn't have the job security that they think they have in order to speak out and to share their challenges in our field, also, there's the security clearance issue. A lot of people don't speak out about their struggles because they're worried that they're going to lose their security clearance and they feel like they have to be robots emotionally. What would you say to someone who might be listening, who might be struggling and who might think, like, well, I want to speak out too, just like Congressman Kim, but like, who do I talk to? Who do they talk to? if they're working on the Hill, just because that's where you are right now. How do you have that conversation as someone who's young and maybe not as confident in themselves and in their career as you might be? Yeah, I mean, look, um, what got me through, you know, this career so far has been about community, you know, about really connecting with, you know, with with people that, you know, that, that I could confide in and, and talk to. I mean, you remember just like the, the, the crew that we had at the, at the Pentagon and, and elsewhere, like they were good people. Yeah. A lot. And both of us stayed in touch with a lot of them, grew up together. We grew up together. Definitely. And, um, you know, it's been exciting because we've, you know, we, we've continued to grow both in our careers and personally, but that's what allows me to sustain it. I mean, there were some really tough days in government. You had them too. There were also very boring days in government and monotonous days in government. And like, you know, you're just like, why am I doing this? I could probably earn a lot more somewhere else. <laughs> but it's the community helped me sustain it. Yeah. You know, helped me recognize that this is a place that brings me not just professional satisfaction, but personal joy. Yeah. And this recognition that like, it's okay to be thinking about what makes you happy and and how you can live a fulfilling life in that kind of capacity. So, you know, I, I really encourage people to 
to build those relationships and move beyond just the transactional nature that that so often dominates government and DC, but it's not just DC. It's just kind of in large and professional life. Like it's not just the networking. It's about finding like people you can really, you know, you can really bond with, and you yeah. look forward to growing up with and and growing old together and and rising up together in that kind of capacity. The other thing is like, you know, helping, you know, I want people to really think about just, again, that, that sustainability and that what satisfies them. That's something that I didn't ask myself until too late was like, well, not too late, but like later than I should have. It's like, what satisfies me? And when I realized that, like, I really did want a family and I really didn't want to, to focus in on that. But even so to this day, like, I'm still trying to calibrate that better. Like, I'm, I, like, I, I, I've taken like two day weekends for the first time in like a decade uh, because like, you know, I just, I need it. And like, I, I want to be present for my kids and, um, and just kind of be able to be the dad that I, I, I want to be and that they deserve. Um, but that takes a choice. Um, and there is a, there is a trade off. I don't go on as many international trips as some of my congressional colleagues. Yeah. And, you know, that's like a big thing that people like to do, go on these trips and it's exciting. You get to see the world. Maybe as I get older and the kids are older, I can do some of that. Um, I, I don't go to as many evening receptions in DC or other things like that, you know, but you make those trade-offs. And so I, I guess what I would just say is like, don't get caught up in that, that FOMO of life of just like there's, you know, and the, that I kind of fear of missing out. Like I, I always, I can, I can live my entire life being reactionary to what I think, you know, others are doing and trying to live up to those standards, but it's okay to, to do something different. So, I, you know, I, I guess I would just say, you know, for people to kind of think about that sustainability and that satisfaction and that, and, and the best way to do that is by building that community of peers but also like trying to have a couple of really strong and thoughtful mentors that can really steady the ship when you start to feel like, you know, there's no place for me here. That that's what I, what I would probably suggest to folks. Well, I mean, that's great. Both of those things are great. And it's, you know, it's about balance and it's about being honest, not just with yourself, which is hard to do sometimes, but with others as well, you know, not putting on airs, not pretending everything's perfect all the time. And that's how you get through things together. And really, you know, really just trying to practice that empathy that you talked about. So thank you so, so much. I promised your communications director, I would not keep you more than 45 minutes. <laughs> so uh, we've actually gone past. So I, Congressman, I really appreciate you being here and being so open and honest. And it's, re it's always inspiring talking to you and hearing from you, honestly. It's, you know, because it's, you're just you're really just one of the good ones out there. And I'm, I'm really glad that we have you in government. And I hope you continue to serve in government for as long as you can while maintaining your balance, um, because I think you just bring a lot of good into it. So thank you for taking the time to be here. And I hope I hope people come away from this conversation feeling encouraged to be themselves, um, to do what they love and to be brave and to not, to not worry so much about what other people think, but to really think about what makes them happy. So thank you so much. Thanks Jasmine for the conversation and for focusing on this issue uh, of mental health and well-being. It's 
something that we don't think about enough. And uh, I think that that's, but, uh, you know, we'd be stronger as a society and as a humanity if we did. So thanks for doing this. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Join me next week as I chat with Lebanese mediation advisor and peace and security practitioner, Karma Ikmegji, on managing mental health when your country is in constant crisis and conflict and how to model healthy coping mechanisms to your children. And don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and share with your friends to help us get these conversations to people who need to hear them. Thank you.